Hello, I'm Simon Burton and welcome to Cambridge Arts Roundup as we gather up a few fresh conkers and perhaps sing a tuneful tune in the autumn air before the chill winds of winter really start biting in. In this edition, we hear about Agamemnon's Golden Mask at a new photography exhibition at Cambridge Museum of Classical Archaeology with curator Dr Suzanne Turner. Artist Sudesh Prasad educates us on the puzzle of being an art viewer at his Cambridge exhibition at Thrive's Hive Gallery in Norfolk Street. Cambridge Youth Opera's artistic director Caroline Coutier talks about a new production and appeals for young people to give one of the many roles in it a shot absolutely free, which could indeed be the foundation of a career in the arts. We encounter sculptural work on the Sidgwick site that has engaging personality. And Primavera Gallery's Joe Fenwick-Wilson talks on being an artist in Cambridge. Not having anything stimulating to do has been the hallmark of the last couple of years, but now there's no excuse as new activity is bursting back into life in Cambridge University's fabulous museums. The birthplace of many of the tales of ancient Greece, Mycenae, is the focus of a new photography exhibition, Mycenae from Myth to History, which has now opened at the Museum of Classical Archaeology as it catalogues the archaeological dig which even uncovered a golden mask thought to have belonged to Agamemnon. In the summer of 1955, Robert McCabe, a young American, was given the simple assignment by Professor Alan Wace to create a visual record of Mycenae with his Rolofex camera and Plus X film. The exhibition marks last year's centenary of the British excavations at Mycenae and puts on show nearly 50 of those black and white photographs, a beautiful and evocative time capsule of the site and its landscape and people. The words accompanying the images are memories of the late Elizabeth French, daughter of Wace. The dig revealed the remains of a palace complex with temples, storerooms, craft workshops and housing surrounded by imposing fortified walls, testament to a flourishing city which dominated its surrounding territories. Curator Dr Suzanne Turner introduces the work amid the large plaster statues which immerse you in a past that leaves you with a certain degree of awe when confronted with statues of Heracles and Athena, some 15 feet tall. We are a really weird collection in lots of ways. We're a really small museum, one of the smallest in Cambridge, and we're nestled in the Faculty of Classics. And our collection is a series of copies, replicas, fakes even, of Greek and Roman sculpture. They really do tell um, the story of ancient Greece visually in a tremendous way. And, and if you have an interest in that, as I very much did when I was uh, young, it's a fantastic way to set off your imagination, isn't it, to come and see these things? Yeah, sure, because our collection does something that you can't do in a collection full of originals because ours was, you know, the objects in it were chosen to tell a particular story about classical sculpture. So you can see side by side things that in the real world you, you never, you couldn't, you'd have to fly lots and travel to lots of different places to see. So our exhibition at the moment on Mycenae from myth to history is a photographic exhibition. Mm. So it covers the dig in 1955 by that time 
time there had been British excavations at Mycenae for, oh gosh, 25 years. And before that, there had been other excavations there. So the, the digging at Mycenae is very long-standing. And so the photographs in this exhibition really kind of capture what was happening 25 years on, how much had been uncovered and what what archaeology looked like, really. You know, the, the magic of finding things in the ground, but also the people who were doing that. And also, you know, more than the archaeologists, the landscape and, and the locals who were supporting that dig as well. What did they find on the dig? Because it must have been tremendously interesting to be at one of these places, which is the absolute centre of um, Greek mythological tales, the seat of Agamemnon. So by 1955, they were at the culmination of a really long-standing dig under a chap called Wace, um, who was directing that dig. And over the course of those excavations and the earlier Greek excavations and other excavations at the site, they had uncovered a Bronze Age palace complex, so with administrative buildings, a citadel on the Acropolis, but also various tombs with wonderful things in them, including lots and lots of, of gold and stuff like that and and the sort of and they were uncovering kind of the ways in which that palace complex was embedded in the networks of the surrounding area and there's a famous famous gold mask of Agamemnon which had been found on the site by, by a chap called Schliemann much much earlier it's famous uh, and basically gold mask was something that um, uh, ancient Greek kings um, generally had as a piece of their equipment, wasn't it, along with their crown, I would have thought. Well, I don't know. I mean, we haven't found that many of them, which is why this particularly stood out. And this is Bronze Age Greece as well, so this is long before kind of democratic Athens or, or anything like that. We're talking much, much earlier. We're talking, you know, the um, heroes that, that that we hear about from Homer, Achilles, Agamemnon, Menelaus. I mean, obviously, you know, their stories, they're made up, but they're harking back to this earlier this earlier sort of society of palaces and administrative centres and a very different way of living in Greece. The, the first photograph of the exhibition is the North Gate at Mycenae. Um, and those images of the gate at Mycenae um, are absolutely classic, aren't they? I mean, they're, they're images of, of a world which all the legends sprung from. And you see that in so many books about Greece and everything else. So it's that kind of image that we're talking about, isn't it? In, yeah, in they're, photography. they're really memorable, aren't they? And I think in these photos in particular, I mean, these are beautiful, beautiful pictures and they're crisp and they're clear. And there's something about them being in black and white as well that makes them feel... Um, so much more powerful I think almost so I think you know a dig today is is still quite an experience um you know everyone kind of goes off together uh lives together whether that dig is happening in Greece or whether it's happening here in the UK in the rain and you know it's it's a huge bonding experience for everyone involved in it because you do it for a season and then you have to go back to your day-to-day -day life don't you um and sometimes you find stuff and sometimes you don't it's the luck do, of the do people stand around the fire and tell those tales of ancient Greece tales or are there only tales that you tell yeah well sure I mean I think you know the stories around Mycenae are some of the best known myths from the ancient world so 
the the king according to homer the king of mycenae was agamemnon agamemnon was the king that led the greeks to march on troy because it was his brother menelaus who was married to helen beautiful helen who ran away to troy with handsome paris so they you know they fired up all of the greeks to march on troy to try and get her back and that led to the great trojan war the 10 10 year war and of course for for homer when we read about that in homer um that's a story as much about Achilles and his fame as it is about Agamemnon. Agamemnon is the bad guy in many ways, I guess, in, in, in that story. And then, you know, what happened afterwards, after the Greeks won, after the Greeks, you know, snuck into Troy, hidden in a wooden horse and, and you know, managed to win the war by subterfuge rather than outright battle, everyone had to go home. And for many of the heroes, it was not a happy ending that they found at home. The most famous is probably Odysseus, who wound up with another 10-year journey, circling around the Mediterranean, encountering various women and witches and beasts and monsters and things um but Agamemnon found that when he got home he had a very unhappy welcome so on his way to Troy he had sacrificed his own daughter because he thought that he needed to in order to ensure that the Greeks would win and somewhat unsurprisingly his wife Clytemnestra was not exactly impressed with this act uh, there's a shock <laughs> um, and so not only did she embark on a love affair I mean he had been gone for 10 years to be fair with a chap called Agisthos but when he came home together they murdered him and in in graphic terms by all accounts so Agamemnon after you know being the king of kings leading this Greek force wound up dead at the hands of his own adulterous wife according to the stories at home in Mycenae in the palace are there any issues um, in these tales that particularly strike you and that, that, that you pick up as points that you think are important to discuss about ancient Greek mythology well, I mean, I think it's not a Greek myth, is it, if there's not a tragedy involved? There's always got to be death and destruction somewhere along along the lines. Um, but for me, I suppose, Greek myth is this fantastically fluid and malleable force because, you know, it survives to us in little written snippets. Even Homer, we have a written, polished version of it from what must originally have been, um, you know, spoken poetry that, that changed every time it was delivered. And so we've lost a lot of the rich fabric but of, of ancient myth. But myth was never just kind of, there was never one single version of a story. These stories were always incredibly flexible and malleable. And for me, that's the real power of Greek myth. Um, th these photographs, I mean, how many of them are there in the exhibition and what's the range of images that are available for, for them to have a look at? So the photographs are by Robert McCabe. Oh, yeah. Robert McCabe was a young American man who, um, Wace, Wace was the director of the British School at Athens okay. at the time, yeah. and he invited Bob, Robert McCabe, to go with him and take photographs in that archaeological season. And so Bob, he took photos of, you know, like you said, the main features of the site, the things that are now so memorable to us. He also, though, took photos of the site and the landscape. So there are lots of beautiful pictures of the landscape at different times of day. So you get a real sense of the way in which the, the city, the palace of Mycenae was embedded in its landscape. But he also photographed the people. So there are lots of photos of Wace himself. Two years later, Wace, Wace would be dead. So Wace was, you know, at, at 
the peak of the pinnacle of an incredible career and he's an amazing figure in some ways in these photographs also his family because his family was with him so his wife Helen and his daughter Lisa Elizabeth so so you know there's there's the kind of waste French story there but there's also the story of the archaeologists who were there on the dig the architect and lots of lovely photos of the of of the way in which I guess when you go on a dig you are also embedded in the local culture and the people that make that happen um so lots of people and what I love about this exhibition the captions were written by Lisa French who was Wace's daughter and basically pretty much every single person in those images has a name so there are no nameless people these are her memories her very fond reminiscences of that hot summer so Wace was head of the British School at Athens. He was personally given permission by the Greek authorities to dig at Mycenae. And he was a world-renowned expert on, on Mycenae and the Bronze Age. And his daughter, Elizabeth, who's very dear to us here in the, in the Faculty of Classics, she followed in his footsteps. Her first trip to Mycenae with him was when she was eight years old. Um, she was there digging with him that summer in, 19, that summer in 1955 yeah. while she was completing her archaeology, her classics degree over the road here at Newnham College. So she hadn't completed that yet. And she would go on to also be, become an expert, a world-renowned expert on Mycenae to, and also actually to become the first female director at the British School at Athens. So Lisa French was a force of nature. She was she was incredible. And she donated her father's archives to this faculty. So we now host those. But unfortunately she died mm-hmm. earlier this year. So this exhibition will run for this term until the 10th of December and then it will come down. From Tuesday the 5th, it'll be the 5th, won't it, of October, we are going back to regular opening hours. So we'll be open 10 till 5 from Tuesday to Friday. We're no longer uh, requiring booking to come to visit us. And also we're opening back up to school groups. Dr Suzanne Turner, thank you very much indeed for showing me around. You're very welcome. (laughs) When you look at a piece of art, what do you really see? And what's actually there in the work? Well, that depends on you, the viewer, because what's there depends on what you think it contains. This puzzle was the idea behind an exhibition this month at the Hyde Gallery by artist Sudesh Prasad, entitled Insight, and explores the collaborative nature of the artist and viewer. He uses mixed media for a predominantly abstract series of works, including encaustic paintings and drawings, and drawing upon themes of place, time and memory. Sudesh took time out to talk about his work at the show. This exhibition is called Insight. What's it all about? You have to see it written, but it's the whole idea of looking and seeing, that seeing is different than looking. There's a, uh, an artist named Robert Irwin who did a series of interviews with a, an author called Wexler, and it's called Seeing is Forgetting the Name of the Thing You Are Looking At. And I think in the age of digital work and a lot of instantly available images on social media, it's been very important to see things rather than just looking and scrolling through. So the idea is for people to see things and see the craft, see the subject in front of them. Uh, They're mostly abstract, uh, not figurative, uh, and to get a deeper insight, firstly, 
of themselves and them looking at art and also that art has this power which I think needs to be reinforced. It, it has a, a powerful tool in society. It's a powerful medium in society that should not just be seen as decoration or background. Um, are you talking really about educating the senses with your art? I would hesitate to say educating. I would say taking time to think about things that has become less and less due to the instant nature. It takes work to look and see art. And I think that that is something, whether it's education or not, it's, it's work that I think people need to do for themselves, not for me. My What I think is irrelevant. The work should speak directly to people. And from there, they can take it away and look at other aspects of their life, society at large. And that approach is in retreat in the digital age. I, I think so. I think creating is not, you know, we've gone from influencers to creators. I think we need, there are a lot of sincere people doing sincere thing, but what we need in art is truth, not sincerity. And that's hard work, and I think that is something that certainly when you say art, it's not decoration, it's not kitsch, it needs to be something more than that. And that's what I'm trying to get across. So what's the story about the artwork that's on display this evening and who are the influences that led to it? I studied art history in, in university. So, I mean, there's one painting of a, about 30 or 40 lemons painted in fairly realistic oil, but they're on a blank background. And this background is when I was looking at Velazquez, did a lot of paintings of the court, but not important people, just uh, the jester, the cleaners. Uh, there's one very famous of the court actor, and he is on a stage. Uh, he's presented on a blank background. And that at the time was incredibly revolutionary because at, uh, in the court of Philip IV, you had very uh, you had paintings that were very iconographic, so he would be on a window ledge or would have his iconography. And that was what I was trying to do with lemons. It's not about lemons. It's about looking at what you're looking at and then seeing if there's something else to it. So look at it first. Oh, it's lemons. And then see what you see. Most people see lemons falling. And I say, well, what if you're looking from a table because there's no perspective. So it's a lot about what people bring to the work. And So uh, when you lift a, a concept like that um, yeah. from an influence, uh, as you described, yeah. and then, then you, you, you basically choose lemons to um, illustrate it. Is there a great risk that without your explanation, people won't get it? People will get what they get. As you can imagine, people in Italy say, oh, you have to go to the Costiera Amalfitana because of lemons and limoncello. And I said, hashtag, it's not about lemons. But if that's what you take from it and it starts a conversation between you, the viewer, and a, and a, a painting, then great. Now, now what, kind of, what kind of materials are you working with? Because I gather you use encaustic techniques. Yeah, um, it's oil on canvas, charcoal and chalk on paper, and encaustic, which is melted wax, varnish, and pigment. Uh, they're very tactile. They're also very difficult to work with. Uh, I was consciously making these choices because there's a lot of quick art made with acrylic, and materials matter, craft matters, and knowing how to use these things matters to me. It may not matter to anybody else. And somebody said, a visitor said, oh, they look like works by different artists because of different materials. 
um, which was telling because I think uh, an artist should be able to get a message across in many materials. I mean, I use branches and bricks in, in my work. So discs and circles seem yeah. to be um, uh, very much something that you like to experiment with in this exhibition particularly. Why is that? Um, again, like lemons, it's a universal. Everybody knows what it is. Everybody brings something of their own baggage with it. And if my work can then start a, a conversation with the person between the work and them, then that for me is a success. Somebody walked in front of a dark circle and said, it was like a black hole sucking something out of me. And I said to them, well, maybe that's more about you than about some chalk on a piece of paper. So... I like to use universal things rather than figurative art because a circle is a circle. There's nothing more about it than a geometric shape and it does occur in nature and everybody has seen a circle. Thank you very much indeed for talking to Cambridge 105. It's been a most interesting exhibition. Thank you very much for coming down and uh, yeah, I look forward to uh, talking with you again soon. Sweet music from Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro awakens in us something supremely noble in the human spirit. But who's got the patience to learn how to be an opera singer? Well, the Cambridge Youth Opera is now inviting young people to give it a shot from scratch. And it won't cost them a penny to be involved in any one of a full range of roles in their new opera production, The Little Black Cat. Artistic director Caroline Coutier says you can learn a great deal about yourself when you take on a project like this. And it can be the beginning of an arts career. First of all, Caroline, tell me about yourself. How did you um, become part of Cambridge Youth um, opera. I have a long background in opera. I've worked in an opera in South Africa, in mostly in Germany, some here in the UK. When I moved to Cambridge, I was looking for something to do that was a little bit different. And I realised that there was a gap in the market, if you like, around young people who were learning to sing, lots of them in Cambridge, but who had very little experience of opera as such because there is very little live opera in Cambridge. I also have a really long-standing interest in opening up the arts to all children and young people and to making it more accessible and to giving them a chance to try things that they might otherwise not try. And opera is a great way of doing this because it encompasses all the arts. So I looked around, took me a while to get off the ground and find the people I needed, but then started Cambridge Youth Opera in 2011. Were you an opera singer yourself? I studied singing at conservatoire and I have sung, but primarily my interest has always been in direction, in production, in writing and so on, and in backstage, the backstage elements of opera. We are going to be creating an opera with them from scratch. They will have the opportunity to work with us, and in the case of the older ones in particular, to work intensively with a well-known composer of opera um, for young people, Russell Hepplewhite, whom we've worked with in the past. And they will be in, in the current phase of the project, so between now and December, they will be writing the words and the music that go to create the opera. For the older ones, this means doing online workshops with members of the team in which we'll introduce principles of composition and writing and we'll then work with them to help them to collaborate to create the libretto and score. For the younger ones it's really exciting, I mean the older ones it's really exciting as well, but the younger ones, the, the opera has a big cat element and um, the younger ones, so aged 11 to 13, will be working with us on all the things about the cats in the opera and doing a really exciting project creating cat words, music, ideas, everything to do with cats. The project is based on a folktale about a young girl and her cat and the cat gets lost. 
the girl finds her. It's a folktale, there's a big magical element to it, but it's also quite a, a beautiful story about, about, about courage in the face of huge adversity. The girl is very poor, about the journeys that we make for the things and the people that we love, and also, as you would expect from a fairy tale type story, there is a big element of goodness rewarded and greed punished. We are hoping to produce, or we're planning to produce and perform it next year as part of the Cambridge Summer Music Festival. At that point, we'll be working with the Norwich Puppet Theatre, who are taking on a big scene in the middle with the cats, and that will be performed entirely by puppets, although still sung by our young live singers. It sounds so it will be a very visually um, exciting project to actually look at once it's staged. Oh yes, I think so. We've had various meetings with the Puppet Theatre and what they have planned is fantastic. They're also going to be working with young puppeteers from the Norwich area whom they'll recruit. But the plans that they have have been are, are just wonderful. Which schools are taking part? We are working with a fairly light touch with a variety of partner schools including Chesterton Community College. We also have a large part of this part of the project um, which is running through the Netherhall School. They will be running a module in their English program for all year eights in Netherhall around this project, around the cat element. So we're very excited about that. And then next year we'll be working again with Chesterton and also with a couple of schools outside Cambridge on the cats choruses that will be part of the of the final opera. Now, now doing something like this could really boost a young person's confidence, can't it? Because um, it, it, it it shows that you can do something um, impressive in your extracurricular activities and it also teaches you valuable life skills doesn't it as well Oh, absolutely. I mean, we have quite a lot of evidence about the wonderful impact that we have on the lives of the young people who work with us. It is a huge confidence boost for them. We put a lot of trust in them. And I think that they like that sense that they are that we trust them to do things. So for example, we trust them to completely run a show. And they also get to work with young people who are interested in the same things as they are. And that's a tremendous boost for a, for a lot of the young people. Can that be a foundation for a career in the arts? Oh, absolutely it can. I would say, I mean, we're always careful to point out that most of the people who come through Cambridge Youth Opera don't end up working in the arts. They learn skills that will help them across their lives in general. But we do have a number of people who've gone into careers in the arts now. We have singers, we have a couple of stage managers, we even have an opera director working in Germany who came through us. Some of them obviously come to us with an interest, but others find their interest with us and I would say there are if I think about it there are some of the most successful of our young alumni are people who found out that they were really interested in for example singing or in um, or in in one case of somebody now who's just graduated with first class honours in stage management and lighting she came to us not knowing what she wanted to do and really found her way with us. Now, you've been doing digital opera making workshops during COVID as a kind of ice cube for this practice with mentors and things like that. How's that been going? And, and have, has the, the, the lockdown really affected um, what people have been doing in a big way in the arts? Oh, yes, <laughs> clearly. Um, it's quite interesting with the digital opera making workshops. You said it's an ice cube. didn't really start that way. When the first lockdown happened, we were about to perform Hansel and Gretel. We were three weeks away from performing when we had to pull the show. And 
I think some arts organizations panicked. I mean, we all panicked, let's be fair. <laughs> but some people thought, well, how do we carry on doing what we do? We took a different approach. We thought, what can we do that will keep alive our activities, our ethos, the benefits that we provide to young people? What can we do in this strange new world where we can't work with people face to face? And based on that background, we designed this series of digital opera making workshops. We were very fortunate to get funding from the Arts Council to run them. And they were hugely successful. But I think it's fair to say we went into them with a very good idea of what we wanted to do, but not a huge idea of how it was actually going to work out. It worked brilliantly and we got a lot of attention including nationally. The English National Opera picked up on it, the Arts Council picked up on it, it was featured in an Arts Council exhibition of youth arts under COVID, the work that these young people did. And that gave us the confidence to say, okay, actually we can work with young people to actually create opera as well as to produce and perform it. I think it's, it's perhaps worth mentioning that one of the participants in his feedback said um, he finished his feedback I just loved it with I can't wait to write my next opera and that's been the inspiring point for the little black cat from the start. Okay where can young people find out about this and what would you say to anyone suffering from a bit of stage fright about doing this? The easiest way to find out about what we do is to go to our website which is www.cambridgeyouthopera.com. Caroline Curtier, Artistic Director of Cambridge Youth Opera, thank you very much for talking to 105. Cambridge University's Fresh Affair attracted the usual throng of students on Parker's Peace as they joined up for everything from gliding classes to the dizzy heights of the music societies. Cambridge University's Musical Society, after 595 days since their last performance, are flagging a new season featuring an opening concert of Erilyn Wallen's Mighty River on October the 23rd and a series of lunchtime concerts. They're looking for new recruits to take part in the action from the fair. And Emmanuel Music Society is bouncing back with the folk ensemble and workshops on folk dancing. Plus there's the Emmanuel College Chorus and Emma Jazz at a series of venues around the uni and chamber music recitals, among other projects. Taking a walk across the Sidgwick site in Cambridge can lead to some strange encounters, as I discovered this week when without my glasses I could see a person standing in the distance perfectly still and not doing anything at all. On approaching to find out what was going on, I was surprised to find that it was the sculptural work of Anthony Gormley, a made entirely of bronze cubes that tricked the eye in every direction, leaving you, as the mind naturally closes, with the visual impression of a life-sized person in the shadows of a building. It's just one of five sculptural works by different artists that make it worth a walk through. Philip King's span, which broke away from the figurative tradition of carving and modelling in using steel, plastics and colour, suggests an entirely new relationship between sculpture and the modern world, juxtaposed with the new building it stands before. And Nigel Hall's work is also on view. Cambridge is a place where the arts are constantly changing, and I was fortunate to discover the interesting world of artist Joe Fenwick-Wilson, who's also manager of the city's prestigious Primavera Gallery. Joe was born in 1993 in Rugby, Warwickshire. After many years as an outside artist, he went to study fine art at the prestigious Falmouth University. He's lived in different places across England, but is now based in Cambridgeshire, where he has a studio at St Barnabas Press. His paintings and drawings are inspired by the mundaneness of happenings and objects from day to day. He often uses repetition, and he likes to push drawings until it becomes as mechanical as writing one's name. Also inspired by patterns and rituals, Joe's work celebrates the uniqueness and strangeness of the normal. 
He attempts to create an entrance in his work for identifiable objects and actions, and this allows the viewer to reflect on their own rituals and relationships with the forgettable yet important things in their lives. I, I, I find your paintings very interesting because you've got things like optical pictures that have sort of slightly illusory things. I, I was referring to that one with the car in the middle and things like that. What, what, what went into that and what was that about? I think the paintings, a lot of the time, they're like a thousand different paintings before they become a painting. And um, I like the idea of drawing things until they kind of become like writing your name, you know, like you can do it with your eyes closed. I, I like that like um, symbolism of, of mark making. Uh, I think there's this thing with like playing with this, I think you did you call it like kind of like an optical illusion kind of thing where I like to also give myself rules. Like I'm not necessarily like a painter who is able to paint beautiful scenes. I like painting one thing, you know, and it goes usually from a drawing, then it might turn into some graffito and then more oil gets layered over it and then the drawing comes back. And I like this appearance of things kind of, I like ticking boxes, so I like going okay so the car that the red is on the left now it has to move one square to the right so that the car looks like it's slightly coming off the surface and and ticking boxes as I go along making rules it for myself and completing the challenge you know it's got you, you, I mean I, I noticed there's um, you know obviously some interesting symbols that you chose there but you also focus on particular objects why do you do that I think I do that because I have a kind of slight I'm slightly obsessive so when I see something that I like you know a, a car the thing about a car is like it's a celebration of something that you you first want to draw when you're a child you want to draw a car or be able to draw a car and that painting we were we were, we were speaking about is like a, it's the most simplistic car you know it's just two wheels and and a box and I think that that is like drawing for me is about trying to um, you know do, do as little as possible really um, um, you, you choose quite a lot of um, things from mundane life and then you make them um, colorful and interesting what, what is it about the mundane that interests you is something that you're concerned with um, I think that the mundane mundane is quite a I think that it's you know life is quite mundane you know I think making art is about trying to celebrate the the mundaneness of life the everyday the things that you pass you know like sometimes you might see your a reflection of yourself in a puddle and you just walk past it and you don't think anything of it and sometimes you see a reflection of yourself in a puddle and 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 it gets attached to your mind and you and you can't live without living with it you know and and for me i think i get really obsessed about small things things that i noticed and, and things that just turn up out of the blue in your life uh, you know like yeah, i just think that's i think it's beautiful celebrating these things that you just pass that you just ignore I think that that's what maybe art for me is about. It's about celebrating these things. And I suppose a typical example of that was the, the painting that you did of wine glasses um, stacked up using different blues and things like that. And you basically transformed something that you see quite a lot in bars and things like that um, into something that stands off the page. That, was, uh, that started from a drawing. I realised that I could draw a wine glass in like, you know, a matter of you know, milliseconds. Like, you know, and, and I feel like... When you can draw something in a matter of milliseconds, why not draw it, you know, I think, I don't know how many wine glasses are in that, um, I think it's like the equivalent of 15 bottles of wine in large glasses of wine, so I think it's 72 wine glasses or something. It started with a drawing, um, and just because I grabbed what I can, I had these strange, um, you know, the pet, there's just a pen that you get, like a multi-pack of 12 of them, and they'll be like different gel colours. So that painting was like some wine glasses, and then at, at, at first it was you know it changed a lot and changed a lot and you can see when you look at the paintings that there's a lot gone underneath the the, the final works the problem with that painting for me is that getting the the, the oil and the, to the right viscosity to be able to actually paint like you like the way in which you uh, use a pencil it just makes the mark instantly and it's the same mark every time 
if you know depending on pressure with the wine glasses it was, it's trying to get the paint right you know to to, to move like a drawing you know? I, I mean looking at your website I saw um, uh, obviously that interesting film that you have um, on the introductory um, pages that shows you working furiously in your studio what happens in your studio do you work in fits and starts um, how does that work I'm, I'm a proper grafter you know I think that's my kind of you know being from the, the Midlands a lot of my friends are, are grafters you know I'm, when I get to the studio I'm, I'm in and I work and I work and I work and it's you know I've, I found um, this quote by Philip Guston in a book that someone let, lent me and he said um, about how he you know he, he would paint and paint and paint and paint and paint until he was starving and tired and like you know thirsty and he was about to you know collapse and then he would start painting and for me that is what the painting is about it's about getting to that that place of of absolute of kind of insanity you know and and then exercising that as hard as I can until I until I literally need to get the train home because I need to eat you know um, you, you chose um, some images from pageantry for some of the, the, the works that you've done. Um, does that come from Cambridge, from looking at the gargoyles and the symbols and everything else? Yeah, yeah. You know, as it working, working here on King's Parade at Primavera Gallery, um, I get to look at the King's College all the time, and that has sparked my interest in, in these, these symbols to the point where I actually went and bought myself a book called um, uh, Medieval Beasts, I think it's called, and it's, just, and it's an array of these... These, these symbols that people have been drawing for forever, you know, and, and they have so much significance to people. For me, they, I didn't have a clue what any of them meant. I got to listen into a tour guide outside the front of my gallery once, you know, for free. <laughs> and um, you start to hear about what these, you know, these things mean. And I, I just think it's, I think it's beautiful. And they're so, they're made with such small um, amount of marks. There's no drama. It's just, there's just no drama. It's just line, lines, you know. Um, as manager of Primavera Gallery, um, you, and, and being a working artist in Cambridge, you, you get to see the art scene um, from top to bottom. What do you think of what is actually happening in Cambridge at the moment? Obviously, we've just had the lockdown, but uh, you know, from the artists you've met, um, how, how are people, what are people getting engaged with? What are they getting concerned with? I think um, Cambridge is actually one of the most uh, creative places I've lived in the sense of there's a lot of artists around um, I do fear the the amount of because of the the natural wealth in Cambridge I do fear that a lot of people are taking studio space that don't use it because they can afford it um, and I feel like that breeds bad art you know it breeds the same art that gets made all the time and um, I, I don't agree with that I, I don't think there's much if studio space is being taken then there's there's no um, kind of church for, for for young creatives because you need a place to make art and 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 I think that there's a lot of art galleries and there's a lot of um, there's a lot of craft art and there's a lot of people that want to buy it but then when you have someone like me that makes these quite vicious paintings you know there's, there's not really much of a space for them I don't think um, th th there isn't I mean th there's there's long been a debate between the um, the privileged sector in Cambridge which is generally represented by Kettles Yard and uh, the posh galleries um, and the the more bohemian um, side of um, artwork in Cambridge that comes from visiting artists and from the Mill Road area and from various collectives and what have you do you see um, do you see those as, as somehow uneasy with each other the privileged sector and, and, the, and the more kind of bohemian street sector of the art I think that there's like um, I think a lot of people that you know are, are in the same boat as me as like a working class 
artists. I feel as though we just think that privileged sector of art is just naff. It's just like it's just not enjoyable. It's it's not it's not what what um, it's not necessarily spreading the right message of what art possibly can spread. And I think when the the kind of this kind of outside sh street art, if you want to call it that, what's beautiful about that is that it doesn't. It, it doesn't scare anybody off. Someone can just... This is why people will tell you that they don't like art, but they like Banksy, because they can walk past a piece of graffiti and not and just acknowledge it and walk off. And you don't need any instructions as to how to view it. You don't need anything. You just either love it or you don't. and Or you just, you just don't care about it. But that's what art is. That's why music's such a beautiful art form. But you also do something else that's interesting, which is that you're, um, you're involved with skateboarding as a kind of arts um, movement as well. What, what, what's that about? Um, skateboarding is why I am an artist. You know, Being at the skate park as a kid, I've always been a skate park kid. Um, you, you, you start to see loads of raw forms of art around you. And it's, it's one of the first... I think that it's probably the best form of street art, I guess. Um, you know, skating because it, it it enables you to dance. You know, as if you're in a in a disco, um, but with a whole squad of people that are always bouncing off of each other and and you know appreciating what what each other's do. And the best thing about skateboarding in relation to art is about failure and success. You know, with skateboarding, you even you you think about an ollie. You're trying to ollie over something, a, a block out of a kicker. Um, you fail and you fail and fail and fail and fail, non-stop. And the time that you do succeed is like when you jump into the sea off of a cliff and you are submerged in the beauty of, of, of the under, you know, the under, the, the, the water. And that, you know, to, to, it's quite rare that people in their life get to experience failure so much um, for... You know, they, skaters want to feel, you know, there's, there's a beauty in it. Joe, Joe Fanick Wilson, thank you very much indeed for talking to Cambridge Arts Roundup. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's great. Wow. It always amazes me just how many things there are to do in Cambridge's creative and cultural sector. And I hope you've enjoyed finding out about it on Cambridge Arts Roundup. And we'll tune in again soon.